Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode four of the Full Stop Podcast. This is Michael Shapira, interviews editor, coming to you from Tumen, Western Siberia, deep in the Russian Federation. The reasons for which I'm here hopefully will be revealed in a further podcast. But today we have a really exciting conversation between Magdalena Edwards and Jennifer Croft, two young translators. Jennifer has been in the news recently because she is amongst other things, a translator of, and forgive my terrible pronunciation, Oga Tarashuk, who was the Polish writer who's recently been awarded the Nobel Prize, along with Peter Handke, and she is the one that comes with a lot less political baggage. So what follows is a wide-ranging conversation, beginning with the topic of translation, but going in so many different directions between Jennifer and Magdalena. Um, Before we get to the conversation, just to remind you, it's a piece of business, we are a fully licensed 501c3 company, corporation, nonprofit, whatever the legal terminology is. And you can always contribute to the Full Stop Project by going to patreon.com slash fullstopmag. So without further ado, here is Magdalena Edwards and Jennifer Croft. I'm here this morning with Jennifer Croft to discuss her new book, Homesick. My name is Magdalena Edwards, and I'm also an LA-based writer and translator. Jennifer, it's so good to have you with us. It's so wonderful to get to talk with you, Magdalena. It's my pleasure. And first, I want to say congratulations. There was big, big news yesterday. We were supposed to speak yesterday in the morning, but we had to postpone. Tell us what happened. Yeah, I'm so, I was so disappointed that I had to put it off, but also very thrilled that Olga Tokarczuk won the Nobel Prize in literature, which is something that I had been expecting for a long time, but was extremely um, moved by when I actually heard the news at four o'clock in the morning, terrifying my cats by racing around the house in <laughs> tears of joy. So yeah, it was a big day. I was in interviews all day talking about Olga's work. So it was a, yeah, it was amazing. Well, congratulations to both of you. Yeah, thank it's you. Incredible. Um, I want to begin with a question that links your work as a translator to your work as an author. Can you tell us a little bit about how these two modes of artistic practice uh, are connected and maybe disconnected for you? Sure. Yeah, I think that um, translation was something I always treated as a kind of apprenticeship. So I chose writers, mostly contemporary women writers. I think exclusively contemporary writers and from the Slavic languages almost exclusively women writers whose work I really admire and want to emulate in some ways. So Olga Tokarczuk, for example, I really love her beautiful lyrical prose, um, which I find so soothing, which means that even when she is confronting very difficult subjects it's somehow still eminently readable and I think that's a great strategy to reach more people um, to just get people to pay attention to what the topics that interest you regardless of what they are so she has that and then she also trained as a psychologist and I think that gives her a unique 
psychological acuity. She has this almost surgical precision with her characters. So she's able to just kind of get into the minds of quirky people, seemingly totally normal people, and she's just fascinated and kind of pushes further and further and further into their psyches in a way that I find extremely compelling. Um, so, yeah, and, I, and I've taken elements from every writer I've translated, and it's something that I am very mindful of doing and very excited about doing because I get, I love reading contemporary American literature as well, but any, any literature can become kind of isolated and almost provincial without exposure to other, other influences. So I think, I think it's an important thing that I do as part of my writerly practice. There's a, something that I've been thinking a lot about in terms of the relationship between translation and writing or two different, the relationship between two different texts or two different things, which for me comes up in Homesick quite a bit in many different ways. One of the very clear ways is the two sisters. Uh, another way, and that relationship, and how any kind of relationship or collaboration uh, creates an exchange. I'm also thinking about how you get into language itself, and where it comes from, and how it rises up for us. There's a moment where you describe one of the sisters, or she, she's speaking in the first person, about saying the word egg. And, and I write about Clarice Lispector and I've translated Clarice Lispector and for her eggs are enormously important. And I did not necessarily assume in that moment that either sister or you were thinking about Lispector's eggs. Uh, however, for me as a reader, that immediately came up and I was so delighted with that kind of refractory moment. Could you talk a little bit about how you explore our relationship with language as it as it kind of rises up from the ground or from silence. Yeah, I mean language was always kind of my saving grace like from a very very early age I was just really interested in language. I was interested in reading and writing, but the, but it was something kind of more fundamental than that. And then part of what homesick is about is foreign languages and so I grew up monolingual in Oklahoma and um, started teaching myself Russian when I was a teenager, when I was 13. And that was just such a, an important moment of transition for me and eventually led to my discovery of translation, which um, is an important part of the plot of the book too. But I also wanted to think about words as selves as a way of getting to the question of untranslatability and as you say, the sisters are texts that are almost irreconcilable and yet profoundly connected and inextricable. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to tell a story that, that interrogated itself as it went along um, at its most basic level, which would be words, of two people who who desperately try to understand one another, but who, of course, face the limitations that any two human beings face, whose paths have diverged, or who are simply different, have different personalities, and have trouble fully coming to grips with each other as individuals, rather than as projections. Right. And I think, for me, so much of the book is about that process of attempting to 
yeah. without necessarily being so concerned with the outcome and or finding these interesting, if not at times happy, if not at times difficult accidents along the way, you know, in this process. Can you tell us a little bit about the relationship your book has, your book establishes between text and image? Because there's these very, there are these very gorgeous photographs that intersect with the text. They're not, I don't see them personally as illustrations per se. Tell us more. Yeah, so I didn't want them to be illustrations. What happened was I wrote this book, which is called A Memoir in English, as a novel in Spanish while I was living in Buenos Aires, Argentina, which I did for a variety of reasons, but the outcome was that I had this strange and interesting work that kind of immediately generated suspense for the Argentine readers I was giving it to because it was set in Oklahoma, which is where I grew up, but it was told in this way that is at once foreign and extremely local. Since I started learning Spanish in my mid-twenties, I speak like a foreigner, um, but I also only studied Spanish in Buenos Aires, which is a very particular form of Spanish um, and easily recognizable as itself. So there was just this kind of interesting gap, I was told, um, between what was being recounted and the way in which it was being recounted. And I thought when I was working on the English that of course there would be no way to reproduce that effect exactly because English is my native language and I was not going to tamper with that. Um, but I ended up coming upon this idea of including the photographs in a very meandering way. I built a website for the book to also start incorporating other languages um, into the project. So I had first just some friends from my PhD program at Northwestern translate into Romanian and Korean and a few other languages, um, just excerpts from the book, and just started putting those together online with images, with, with photographs that I had taken myself. And then eventually when I got an agent in the US, she really wanted to include that in the book, which I think is such an amazing thing for her to have insisted upon since it's not that commercially viable still in the United States to include color photographs. But I think in hindsight it was a really brilliant move because it enabled me to create, again, not a reproduction of that gap that exists in the Spanish, but some kind of separation between what was happening in the narrative and where the narrative was heading. So I, I kind of, I do go in chronological order in the prose and I kind of go in reverse chronological order in the photographs. Um, and also I think it was a way of giving some relief and some sense of hope while the main character is really struggling in her adolescence. And of course the, there's a lot of the book that is about photography which is part of why I initially didn't want to include images because each of the vignettes or the little chapters that make up the book is kind of like a Polaroid photograph in itself, or that was the original intention. So I certainly did not want to illustrate illustrations, um, which is, I wanted to create a tension rather than a redundancy. Right, and I have to say, so this the book is beautifully published by Unnamed Press. It's a gorgeous hard cover edition 
the photographs are in color and they, they are square shaped. And so you would use the word Polaroid. And of course, I also think of Instagram, which maybe is a happy accident. It's in, in a way for me, it's a format I'm used to so much seeing through, you know, my uh, refreshing of my Instagram feed and so forth, Instabooks. But it's also very different. And, and the square photograph, of course, comes before that. Somehow there's not a way to avoid, for me anyway, thinking about it. Uh, and it is relief and also contrast. And also, you and I share uh, a background in, in uh, comparative literature. So I'm always thinking about the, the contrast and the encounter that comes through juxta juxtaposition. Um, will will the t tell us about the the text in Spanish? It's going to be published this coming year. What it's been like for you to have these twin texts? Because again, we have this relationship between the two things. The book is coming out in Spanish second, although you first wrote it in Spanish. In Spanish, it's coming out as a novel, is what I understand, and in English as a memoir. And will the photographs appear in the Spanish version? I don't. I, to answer the last question first, I think some black and white pictures might appear in the Spanish edition, but we we haven't figured that out exactly yet. So it's coming out next year with Entropia. It is appearing as a novel, um, and it is the translations of Homesick are also going to appear as novels. So it's being translated into Polish right now by Agnieszka Pokojska. It will appear with the photographs. Which is interesting because I think also one of the reasons why it became a memoir in English was the pictures, because I think it became too complicated to argue that this was autofiction when there are images of my face throughout the book. That's interesting. But I also think that that distinction just isn't as important in other cultural milieu that I'm familiar with, so... Yes. The European and Latin American. Well, ones. and I think immediately of Borges and I. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think just in general, there's not the same emphasis also on the need for authenticity um, in fiction. And I think because this book grapples with some mental health issues, there was some discomfort on the part of some editors with identifying this as a novel when my own experience was not entirely clear. I see. Interesting. Um, yeah. That, so that was kind of um, complicated, but when Olivia Taylor-Smith and Unnamed Press suggested that we call it a memoir, which was something that neither my agent, Katie Grimm, nor I had thought about, I, was, I thought it was an interesting and fun, yet another iteration of the same project. So I love that there's like this proliferation online and now in the world of this, what is essentially a pretty simple story, a coming-of-age story. Yes. I finished the Spanish first, and I submitted it to a total stranger because I wasn't yet sure how I felt about the project, and I didn't want to send it to one of my friends who was an editor at, at a, an independent house in Buenos Aires, which were the people that I, which are the people I know. Um, so I sent it to Penguin Random House, and they, to my great surprise, immediately accepted it for publication. And I was like, oh, wow, this is how publishing a book is going to be. <laughs> you just write it in a month, you send it to Penguin Random House, they take it, doesn't matter what language you write it in. Unfortunately, that turned out to be not the case. Um, so I worked on it with them for a few months, and it was really exciting, and that was kind of what led me to launch the search in English for an agent, 
Unfortunately, when they found out that I had found an agent, they, I just imagine them as like cartoon characters with dollar signs in their eyes, like they decided to demand the English language rights as well as the Spanish language uh. rights, for which they were not willing to pay. But more importantly for me at the time, it's difficult for an outpost of Penguin Random House in Latin America to sell um, to an American publishing house. So yes. they're not connected as I might have imagined, which meant that chances were at the time, this was like five years ago, the English version that I had already worked pretty hard on would never see the light of day. Of course, the way things ended up going, I'm sure they would have found a home for it eventually, but but I just didn't feel comfortable with that, so the deal fell through. Then I turned my attention to the English, and then finally submitted it to what is actually my by far my favorite publishing house in Argentina, which is an independent house called Entropia, which publishes some of the writers I am most fond of and have translated. Um, and they agreed to do it next year, although the Argentine economy has been faltering to such an extent that uh, I don't know how they're going to do it next year, but <laughs> we do have a contract saying that they will do it. That's exciting. It is really yeah. exciting. Yeah, I can't wait. Can you read an excerpt yeah, sure. for us? I'm just going to read um, a very short little bit of the first section that I wrote in English, and then I'll read it in Spanish. Slowly she gets sleepy like she does in the car, and just like when they drive somewhere, Amy, unlike Zoe, would rather just not get there, would rather just keep going, would like it if the warning never expired. Then the pantry door will fly wide open, and all across the top of it, the frying pan and the strainer and all the knives will glint and shiver like they want to fall and their mother will reach down and grab Zoe, and then, she'll and then she'll carry her away. So the version in Spanish is, De a poquito le agarra sueño, como cuando van en auto. Cuando van en auto, Amy, a diferencia de Zoe, preferiría no llegar, preferiría seguir y seguir y seguir, y cuando hay un tornado no quiere que saquen la alerta nunca, porque entonces la puerta de la despensa se abre y las ollas y los cuchillos colgados sobre sus cabezas en los ganchos de la puerta destellan y tiemblan como si se quisieran callar. Y la mamá se inclina y agarra a Zoe y se la lleva. Thank you. Oh, that's so... It's beautiful and it's very... I just imagine that kind of a moment. I have little kids and the intensity of childhood and the, all the mysteries of childhood, all the things you can't possibly understand. You're searching, searching, trying to put things together, put them in a narrative. And so I wanted to ask you two questions. One is, what was it like for you to write this text in Spanish, um, which is not your mother tongue? Did you find yourself able to get into things that you might not have if it had been your mother tongue? And the second question has to do with this decision to publish the book as a memoir in English, I wanted to ask you about memoir as narrative and the and the sort of construction or reconstruction of memory. Which, of course, if it's if it's if it's memory, if it's memoir, it's not entirely fiction. However, the toolkit one uses in fiction writing is there, and and we all know that that many of us, myself certainly, 
can misremember things or embellish or forget or put things in a different sequence, um, rewrite our own histories, if, if you will. Uh, so what thoughts do you have? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of it being a memoir, it's a creative memoir. So there are some, there's a character in the book, a really important person in the sisters' lives who commits suicide. Um, and I was writing this as a novel and I made it, I made it this person who was important to both of them rather than the person who actually committed suicide, who was really only a feature of my own life. And I had already sort of simplified the arc of the narrative. So it um, tells the story partly of the younger sister's illness and the girl's subsequent homeschooling because of um, Zoe's brain tumor and um, all of her health problems that ensued from her surgeries. But in fact, I, I attended two years of high school, which isn't in the book. Um, before I started going to college when I was 15, which is in the book. Um, so there was a real person at my high school who committed suicide that kind of launched all of these very desperate struggles that I had with mental health while I was in college. But at the point when we decided to call it a memoir, I couldn't imagine, in the same way that I couldn't imagine renaming the characters, who are, of course, also characters. They're based on me and my sister, um, whose name is Anne-Marie in real life. But I can't imagine her being called Anne-Marie in the book. Like, she became Zoe, and I chose Zoe as a name very carefully. And she actually loves the name Zoe and is calling herself Zoe. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just it's the name for her. Um, and it's also, of course, they're, like, slightly exaggerated in some ways, versions of us, and not not fully us in other ways. Um, so Zoe is kind of like the wild version of my sister and whenever she's being wild or cackling madly or whatever she calls herself Zoe, which I think is really great. So there are some things that I intentionally changed in order to make a better or more beautiful book. Um, and then there are other things with memory. My sister, despite having had three brain surgeries, has a much better memory than I do, wow. which who knows how that happens. But um, she, so when I first wrote the scene of her first seizure, which happens pretty early in the book, um, when she was five and I was eight, I workshopped it in a couple of different places. Like I went to a Tin House workshop in Portland and I was so annoyed with people's objections. At the time I was calling it fiction and people told me that they found that scene unrealistic as a girl's first seizure. And I reported this back to my sister with whom I had been, been in constant touch about the book since I started it. That was one, one reason why I started writing it in English as well so that she could read it. And I told her, like, these idiots are objecting for no reason to this perfect story from our childhood. And she informed me that that had not been her first seizure at all, that in fact her first seizure had been a few months earlier, that things had gone completely differently, and that I had been sort of the protagonist in the scene, but I had blocked out the memory completely. Like, I had been the one who detected that there was something wrong with her, I was the one to get her help, I was the one to carry her to the car, to take her to the hospital. Oh. So I ended up kind of writing a scene similar to what she described. The memory didn't come back, but I, I mean, I assume she remembers. So I ended up putting it in there just to kind of avoid people's 
incurring people's disbelief. But I certainly would never argue that this is like a complete representation. I mean, I think that's impossible anyway, but... It's not a photograph of your life. It's not a photograph mm. of our lives, although, as we all know, photographs can be so deceiving, especially now in the age of Instagram. Photographs Absolutely. are fiction. Yes. Are fiction. Well, they're, yeah, they're, they're constructed, curated, they're styled... Yeah, uh, filtered. Filtered. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so there's so many things that come to my mind now. So one of the things I wanted to to comment on is Amy and Zoe A to Z, mm-hmm. and that Zoe's name in real life, quote unquote, is Anne Marie, and she's an A, right. and then your character becomes an A. I love that. It's all kind of like switching roles and doing all this uh, very interesting stuff. And then I wanted to also talk with you about the title Homesick, and and. The idea of home, the idea of, of homelessness or having to uh, travel, and also connecting that with sick, sickness, health, mental health, physical health, uh, sickness and illness in childhood, which can be very difficult. I have three kids, and the two older ones were both born with birth defects, which as a, as a phrase to me was so horrifying. The eldest, he's 11 now, and he's in wonderful health, you know, and we're so grateful for that, but he was born with a major heart defect that was undetected at birth, uh, or rather at, um, in the ultrasounds that they do, you know, when you're pregnant. And I spent two years in a, in a writing workshop as well, a different one at UCLA at the writer's program there an extension, their extension program, which was wonderful. And, but I would write these scenes in the hospital and, and the people in my, in my workshop often had so many concerns or, or problems, I would say, with different moments. And it was very interesting to me because I really wanted to share this sensation of time in the hospital and, and so forth. And, and it, what I think what I was doing wasn't quite getting through. And ultimately, what I thought would be a book ended up being an essay uh, about these kids and about uh, my kids and about Elizabeth Bishop. But what I really want to ask you about here is the idea, you put together home and sick in one word, which is a word we have in English, to be homesick, yes. And, and I, I think, um, it, first of all, just looking at that word in print to me is so evocative and provocative. And, and sickness as a theme throughout the, the, the text, throughout your narrative, is also to me so evocative and provocative. It's so very much something that touches all of our lives, and yet I feel we don't want to get into those things often. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, the title is very important to me, and it's also kind of fun that it is untranslatable. I explore, as I mentioned already, the idea of the untranslatable, and I kind of, one of my goals is to show that nothing is really untranslatable. It's all a question of how you define translation, except for the title is untranslatable, in many ways, I mean, so the title in Spanish is Serpientes y Escaleras, which is the name for shoots and ladders or snakes and ladders, which has to do with an earlier vision for the whole as being about the unpredictability of fate and the divergence of the girls' fates and and Amy's ending up in Argentina, which is a, more of an aspect of the plot in the Spanish version than in the English version. I liked homesick a lot because it sounds... I love these childish-sounding Anglo-Saxon words, these very innocent-sounding compounds. And then I also, of course, I wanted to set up the childhood home 
as being toxic in some ways. And not only their home, which I, I, like, I hope that the mother comes across as being very depressed and disturbed and difficult. And then the father is almost completely absent from their childhood. And the girls start out in this kind of paradise idol where they're super united, but then um, the younger sister Zoe develops a real sickness that slowly infects Amy. And then I became more interested in the perilousness of empathy when it is allowed to get it out of control and what that has to do with, um, again, the relationship between text and translation, mm. um, one voice kind of drowning out the other one. Mm. So Homesick, once I identified that as the title, which was after the completion of the manuscript, it really allowed me to go back and revise with this new kind of focus um, that is really important to me. But I don't know how it's being translated into Polish. I don't think they have the title yet. Nostalgia, or its various permutations in other languages where it has cognates, is not the same, even though it is the same etymologically, and is is like homesick a relatively new term, newer than it sounds. Um, so I'll be interested to see how it is translated. I, I'm an advocate for changing the translations of titles. Like, Flights is not the title of Flights in Polish. Um, flights doesn't mean biguni, which is the title, which what's, is... What's the title in Polish mean? It's the name of a, a Russian Orthodox sect um, that mm. immediately connotes for a speaker of a Slavic language running. So their idea was that you have to remain in constant motion in order to escape the devil. It's not a common word in Polish. They would have to look it up. There's a Wikipedia entry for it. Um, but it's a little hard to find. So I just found that there was no equivalent in English for that. So I wanted to instead do something that also would connote a lot of different associations for the English language reader and also bring together a lot of the ideas in the book, which include, of course, flights on airplanes, but also flights of fancy and fleeing. There's a lot of fleeing, um, not yet refugees, which do appear in the books of Jacob Olga's next book that I'm translating, but nonetheless escape. Um, yes, yes. And it's very interesting because uh, the Guinea, the, the idea that this is a sect where you have to be in transit constantly to escape the devil. You're always in motion, in flight. Pairing that with the idea of being homesick Mm -hmm. Can you be homesick if you come from a people who say we have to constantly be moving to the next place? Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder about that. Yeah, I think that I think can you be homesick is a really good question for anyone. Yes, yes. <laughs> but mm-hmm. also, I think everyone does feel homesick, but just for this origin, whatever the origin is, whatever that feeling is for them, a closeness to my sister in my case which I really only came to feel after writing the book. I mean, I feel really close to my sister, but I didn't miss that very, very, very early closeness in such a painful way until I had already written the book. Or, of course, like a real childhood home, or a country, or Oklahoma, which I spent my whole adolescence trying to escape. And then also only came to really appreciate through writing about it in Spanish, um, very far away from... Oklahoma. That's so interesting. And I think for me also that your book really calls to mind 
and the feeling, the physical feeling of childhood mm-hmm. and, and the mysteries of childhood, the play and how seeing my own kids, it reminds me, or I believe it takes me back to things from my own childhood. You make do with what you have. So you might not understand what's going on. There might be difficult things in the world of adults that seeps in or intrudes or imposes itself on your world. Nonetheless, you play and you connect and you figure out what you can with what's in front of you. And I think that so many of us, I have so many adult friends who are artists in their practicing life all day, every day, or, you know, kind of in the margins and they're waiting to be discovered. But I think ultimately all the people I can think of that I that I enjoy so much working with or having as friends, we all want to play. And ca- can we? Can If we feel homesick for our childhoods, can we bring some of that feeling into our adult experience? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think you're doing a wonderful job of that. And there's so many, and Olga does that. She always has interesting new experiments for her writing and is has maintained a kind of, childlike curiosity about the world and is undaunted by tradition in a certain way excited by tradition but also not intimidated by it I think that's certainly also something that I I mean it's a serious more serious kind of play but to juxtapose the images than the text in my book also was a kind of form of like oh let's like see what we can do with all of these different materials just like put them together and see what happens yes what is next for you before we let you go? Because I know you, you have many things to do and you're, you're preparing for your own upcoming flight. <laughs> yes, so I'm leaving for London today to have the first meeting of um, the jury for the Booker Prize, the International Booker Prize, which I'm very excited to be reading for. We're, apparently we're getting around 200 books um, from all different countries, which is really an amazing opportunity to discover new writers. Um, from all kinds of different languages so I'm doing that right now and then I have a couple of books that I'm working on of my own that I have to postpone until next year two novels and one work of um, creative nonfiction about translation because I'm finishing Olga Tokarczuk's magnum opus right now which is called the books of Jacob and it's a beautiful incredibly exciting sexy book about a real life historical figure named Jacob Frank who was the leader of a Jewish heretical sect in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the Habsburg Empire and the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, He converted his followers to Islam first and then to Catholicism and chaos ensued. So that sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> when do we get to read this book in English? It's coming out in spring 2021. Wow. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for giving us your time Thank and your you insight. Thank you for preparing this wonderful conversation. We hope to see you soon. Thank you, Jennifer and Magdalena, for that wonderful conversation. Please do track down their work as a translator, as a critic, as a writer, as many other hats that they wear. They are not hard to find online, and any search will be tremendously rewarding for you. Thank you also for Matt Orenstein for providing the music for the Full Stop podcast, and for Emily Sinkovitz and Samantha Kerr for rounding out the production team for the podcast. 
Thanks so much, and we'll see you next month. Hopefully we'll be a bit more consistent now. Um, we have a very exciting announcement coming next month, so stay tuned for that.